everybody. This is Paul, contact minister in Wisconsin, and welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. Brother Gregory is on the All-American Whirlwind Tour. He's in Texas this morning, and uh, he asked me to again fill in for him. Now, it's funny because last week he asked me to fill in about five minutes before the show, and it was kind of a flurry of activity here trying to find something to talk about. And this week I had a whole lot of notice And I think I'm ten times as nervous as I was last week But that being aside, please forgive any mishaps I do in my speech I'm going to try and slow down a little bit in the way I talk To make things clearer This morning, like I said, Brother Gregory is in Texas I'm looking at the schedule online And it says he's in Waco, Texas Um, This afternoon he's going to be in White Settlement, Texas At a place called Ryan's on Cherry Lane 1501 South Cherry Lane And then tomorrow he will be for a big stop in Big Sandy, Texas That's a lunch stop And uh, then come April 11th, Monday He will be in the East Texas area near Tyler So... uh, that's a little bit what's going on. If you're in the Dallas, Tyler, Big Sandy area, I encourage you to get out and meet face-to-face with Brother Gregory and the people, everyone else that has your same uh, direction in life in mind. After Texas, he will be moving on to Mobile, Alabama, Moss Point, Mississippi, on his way up to South Carolina in the Fort Mill area then to Strasburg, Virginia, on to New Jersey and Califon, New Jersey, going up to Worcester and Boston in Massachusetts, then on to Pennsylvania, Middlebury, Indiana, Columbus, Ohio, I'm sorry, Columbus, Indiana, I don't want to get those mixed up, on to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Wimbledon, North Dakota, and then home. This is uh, really putting a lot of work in for the kingdom of God and to spread the gospel of the kingdom. If you want uh, the details of these stops and if you think you're along the the route and would like to visit with Brother Gregory, um, please visit hisholychurch.org slash tour and you can get all the details there. <clears throat> Last week, as a quick, uh, quick fill-in for Brother Gregory, I started just reading aloud from his book, The Higher Liberty. And what I found was I actually got some good feedback. People were saying, yeah, we haven't looked at things quite in that frame of reference before. Or thanks for reminding me, you know, um, what we found during the week is that there are a number of people even on, on the network that haven't taken advantage of of this Opportunity, these free um, material that's on the network, on the websites, hisholychurch.org, .net, and .info. They're all pretty much copies of each other. We just, uh, in the case of, you're going to have backups. So there's three websites out there. But uh, I'm going to continue this week with more from the Higher Liberty since this seems to be subject that we really should be aware of. And the title I'm going to start with today is called A Kingdom Not of This World. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. John 1836. There are numerous words translated into world in the New Testament. Aeon, oikun mem, gay, and eretz. The word world used in John 1836 is translated from the word cosmos. It came from the word cosmo, meaning to care for, to care of, take care of, provide for, or carry off with one's own. 
which is what governments of men like Cain, Nimrod, Pharaoh, and Caesar often did. The Greek word cosmos has the sense of an orderly arrangement. The Greeks produced other forms, such as used in, from the Greek and the Roman point of view, the word cosmos originally the discipline of an army, and the next, and next the ordered constitution of a state. It is defined in Strong's Concordance as an orderly arrangement, in another Greek concordance as an apt and harmonious arrangement or a constitution, order, government. This is what they're talking about when they say world. It's not the world like the planet, like people often consider. <clears throat> Jesus was telling Pilate, sitting on the judgment seat, My kingdom is not a part of your constitution, order, or government, and you have no jurisdiction to judge me or my kingdom. And Pilate, agreeing, washed his hands with the matter. Jesus had been saying his kingdom was at hand, and we were to preach it was at hand. He was going to take it from the Pharisees and give it to another who would bear fruit. He appointed the kingdom to his little flock. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Matthew 2.2 2. Herod knew, the magi, the angels, the shepherds knew it, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, thousands of people hailed him as the highest son of David, the Messiah, the King, the Anointed. Jesus said that it was for this cause that he came into the world, and even the procurator of Rome defended him as King, and officially, officially proclaimed it so on an epitaph, I'm sorry, epigraph nailed to the cross. The only ones who don't seem to get it that he was king is the modern Christians who have no king except the modern Caesar who calls himself a benefactor but exercises authority over one another contrary to the decrees of Jesus and this is proclaimed in three gospels Matthew twenty twenty five, Mark ten forty two, and Luke twenty two twenty five. <clears throat> now what about rulers in Romans thirteen three we see the Greek word archon, translated ruler. It appears as ruler 22 times, prince 11 times, and chief twice, and as magistrate and chief ruler. The same term is used when Christ appointed a kingdom to the apostles and instructed them to be not to be like the princes of the Gentiles who exercise authority and dominion over the people. The apostles were actually appointed princes of the kingdom of God which they and Jesus said was at hand. The word apostle is the Greek word for ambassador. They were not like government benefactors that exercise authority over one another. They were the one form of government which professed liberty through voluntary charity in support of their government and were not of the world. The Bible has always been a book about government and man's relationship to it and to God. Jesus came to take the kingdom from those who had been leading the people into bondage and redeem them again, not unlike what Moses did in Egypt. He even told those who were ruling the people in Judea at the time that what his plan was. In Matthew 21:43 he says, "The kingdom of the God shall be take the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof." The ministers of the church appointed by Christ were benefactors in service to the people, but they were required to seek righteousness. Christians were not allowed to covet their neighbor's goods or elect men to exercise power and control for their personal enrichment or benefits. Their ministers were leaders of a government that exercised charity, exercised charity not force. They provided a table of free will offerings not compelled contributions taken from members by force or the threat of violence. That table of charitable benefits through faith and love saved them during the decline and despotism of the Roman emperor, Empire. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serves the tabernacle. That's Hebrews 13.10. Does the world have altars whereof we should have no right to eat? Can we eat of the meat of our neighbor when blood is still in it? Can we covet our neighbor's goods and feign righteousness? 
if the temple was to be made of living stones, were the ancient altars also supposed to be made of living stones? Was there a practical purpose and plan? Have the forces of evil sought to deceive us? The answers are simple, but often contrary to what we would we have been taught. We must become like children, seeing with new eyes, letting go of the lies and delusions passed down from age to age. Without humility, there can be no new knowledge. To understand how Christ, his apostles, and his church were turning the world upside down, it may be required to turn some modern religious beliefs upside down as well, or throw them out altogether. Have certain men crept in unawares, denying the kingship of Christ? Like Moses, Jesus Christ came to free the people. Yes, to give us a more complete freedom. He did not come to give us less. God did not send Moses to free the people, only to have Christ appoint a church that brought them back into bondage of the world and the elements of that world. We need to look at what Christ called the weightier matters. We need to repent and set our neighbor free from our own covetous hearts. We need to step up and out in faith and take back the responsibilities God gave every man and woman. We need to come together in his true name and faith, hope and love. It's time to wake up and repent. All right, how about this thing called natural law? The law of nature or natural law is defined as the divine will or the dictate of right reason showing the moral deformity or moral necessity that there is in any act according to its suitableness or unsuitableness to a reasonable nature, sometimes used of the law of human reason in contradistinction to the revealed law and sometimes of both in contradistinction to positive law. That's a mouthful. In respect to the ground of the authority of law, it is divided as natural law or the law of nature and of God and positive law. Positive law is the law actually ordained or established under human sanctions as distinguished from the law of nature or natural law, which comprises those considerations of justice, right, and universal expediency that are announced by the voice of reason or of revelation. These are uh, both from Bouvier's Law Dictionary. Well, what is it talking about here? Positive law is dependent upon human sanctions as distinguished from the law of nature or natural law. Natural law is not dependent upon or connected to the administration of the legislature or the opinions of men. Our opinions may conform to it, but never alter it. Law governs men, law governs men, and reason the law. The laws created by men are real and binding if they are established according to right reason. That does not mean that the laws created by men have to be reasonable. It means their condition is binding due to the presence of reasonable elements of natural law. The elements that bind men under human law or legal systems would include reasonable evidence of consent through actions or oaths, affirmations, application, or participation. The laws of nature are most perfect and immutable, but the condition of human law is unending succession and there is nothing in it which can continue perpetually. Human laws are born, live, and die. What about oaths? We talk about oaths and affirmation, and that's how we get snagged into these contracts of law. Oaths, affirmations, and unsworn declarations under penalty of perjury are more often, or are all more than yes for yes and no for no, like Christ taught. There is little distinction between an oath and a declaration in the effect of law. One subjects themselves to the power and the rulers of the courts, the laws that are made for them. Many Christians think it's okay to take oaths or make affirmations before courts and governments. Jesus expressed a different opinion in the New Testament. Matthew 5.33 starts, Again ye have heard that it that it hath been said by them of old time that thou shalt forswear thyself 
not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou cannot make one hair white or black. Children do that. I'm sorry, that's my... <coughs> My editorialism in there. But lest, but let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Taking oaths or swearing allegiance, service or obedience was a great controversy between Christians and the other nations and led to their persecution from the earliest history of the church. For centuries, Christians would not take oaths but modern Christians think it's okay now and even encouraged. Why is that? James 5.12 says, echoes Christ's thoughts, but above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any oath, but let your yea be your yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. To not swear at all created suspicion and persecution but was the earliest policy of the church after Christ. And with regard to our not swearing at all, and always speaking the truth, he enjoined as follows, Swear not at all, but let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil, and that we ought to worship God alone. He thus persuaded us, The greatest commandment is, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou serve, with all thy heart, with all thy strength. That would be from Justin Martyr, first apology of Justin in 165 AD. <clears throat> Oaths under the authority of government that are created by men are not established by Christ or the Father. It is by your own consent and the words coming out of your own mouth that entangles you back into the bondage of the world. Those governments of men require that you absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, and that you will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. You will not only be required to bear arms and perform non-combatant services in the armed forces, but you will perform work of the national importance under civilian direction, and that you take this obligation freely without any mental reservation. <clears throat> taking an affirmation in lieu of oath makes no difference in the outcome binding or effect in Bouvier's law dictionary an oath is defined as one form of attestation as commonly called an affirmation even the definition of swear includes an affirmation with an appeal to God or someone or something held sacred for confirmation here's the deal there is no more difference between taking an oath or affirmation than there is in committing adultery or having an affair. Both of these activities are the same, just as an affirmation is the same as an oath. So, I may have said that quickly and you may have missed that, but taking an oath in comparison to an affirmation is like comparing committing, an alter committing adultery to having an affair. Okay, one's a nicer way to say the other, but they mean the same thing. Christians used to be persecuted for refusing to take oaths, affirmations of allegiance in obedience to Christ, but now churches preach their own brand of Christianity, that is, an adversary to the teachings of Christ. They, by their own private doctrines and customs, have delivered the people into bondage. By their customs, they make the laws of God to no effect. We were told from the beginning that Christ and Christ restated, Thou shalt not bear false witness, false witness against thy neighbor. The oath and affirmation of government are recorded to bind you under the authority of men. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and you shall be held to your word. While the fundamental rule of law, which we have no right to be ignorant of, is built into creation itself and cannot be escaped, the laws of men must be heralded, heralded, proclaimed, and published by men to all the world, both bind by nature or by consent. Law, as distinguished from equity, denotes the doctrine and the procedures from the common law of England 
and America from which we from which equity is a departure. In respect to the ground of authority of law, it is divided as natural law or the law of nature or of God and positive law. This is a repeat of what we said before. As again, the, the Higher Liberty is a book made up of little articles, so sometimes there's overlap. Please uh, bear with this. God living in the hearts of and minds of good men is the fountainhead of justice and mercy for all of society who seek God's rule. Men who seek to rule over other men or be ruled by men grant power where it is not meant to be. Such unnatural power vested in the hands of one or of a few men will corrupt the goodliest of all souls, like Saul and David and a plethora of kings, rulers, and leaders since the beginning of history. The story of man has revealed a history of an ebb and flow of liberty between diligent societies willing to sacrifice themselves and love one another and those civil societies willing to covet their neighbor's goods to provide and guarantee their own personal conformity and security. In Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Emperor Empire, he praised the union and discipline of the Christian Republic. He also pointed out that it gradually formed an independent and increasing state in the heart of the Roman Empire. This is quite an amazing thing to say. This little group of Christians formed an, uh, a republic in the heart of the Roman Empire. One of the best kept secrets of our time is the form and structure of any of the early church. What was the early church doing to warrant such praise? What what was this kingdom of God that turned the world upside down? Why were they accused of robbing the temple at Ephesus? If Christians were told to obey the government, for God had put it there, and there is no government that God had not placed in power, then why were Christians persecuted by these governments? There is a fundamental misconception about the nature and purpose of the early church. Why were the apostles accused of saying that there is another king, one Jesus? The church was a government established by Christ for his purposes according to the precepts of God. The natural state of man is the image of God and the natural state of God's government for men is a community of men serving God by freely serving one another. It would be composed of men in possession of their endowed rights, exercising the power of choice. It would be a community under the authority of God rather than men. Even today, the definition of church as found in blacks is, in its most general sense, the religious society founded and established by Jesus Christ to receive, preserve, and propagate his doctrines and ordinances, and a body of or community of Christians united under one form of government by the faith and the observance of the same rituals and ceremonies. While this is the definition while this definition of the church may be accurate, our understanding of it can be greatly altered by altering our understanding of his doctrines and ordinances. To change our understanding of the gospel, it is only necessary to change our understanding of the words used in it and their context in history. And we'll continue with more of this after the break. First on FirstAmendmentRadio.com and FirstAmendmentRadio.net, around the world and on satellite. Gold and silver is tremendously undervalued. Global demand vastly exceeds mine supply by more than 60% annually. There is little in the financial world more certain than a coming explosion in the prices of gold and silver. The U.S. dollar continues to lose value and respect as the world's reserve currency. Our nation faces challenges on many fronts, and a day doesn't pass without another economist bringing forth warnings of impending economic calamity. There has never been a better time than right now to acquire physical gold and silver. 
Discount Gold and Silver Trading was founded on the principles of truth and honesty. We believe in providing a quality product, quality service, and most importantly, competitive pricing. We provide all forms of precious metals, including American gold, silver, platinum, and rare investment and circulated coins. Silver bars, rounds, and 90% silver bags are on hand for the silver investor. Gold self-directed IRAs are available. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. Toll free, that's 1-800-375-4188. Now listen to me. The Bible says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. I want you to know that a corporation is Caesar. Government takeover of the church. This DVD is the most powerful tool we have for waking up those asleep in the pews. The scripture calls for his people to come out of her. The corporate church is the apostate church, the whore that rides the beast. Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from FirstAmendmentRadio.com. Make copies and give them away to your corporate church friends and loved ones. The truth will make them free. They will watch the DVD, Government Takeover of the Church. Order online today at FirstAmendmentRadio.com or call 559-781-3773. Who will tell them if not you? Hi, Nicholas here. I used to lug those big jugs to the market to fill with water from those coin-operated filter machines. 25 cents a gallon or 5 gallons for a buck. I used to. Then I got the big Berkey. Now I save my back and hundreds of dollars too. I was paying $600 for the same 3,000 gallons of water that a pair of black Berkey filters will provide from my own tap for only $99. This means that your Berkey water system will entirely pay for itself with only 1,500 gallons of use. And then you will still have 1,500 gallons left before you need to replace the filters. Do the math. Stop throwing your money away on bottled water and filter dispensers that may or may not be delivering as promised. For a limited time, First Amendment Radio is offering 10% off on the most popular Berkey water systems. Visit the shopping page at FirstAmendmentRadio.com or call us at 559-781-3773 for more information. Leave your name and address and we'll send you this special offer. Do it now. First Amendment Radio is an authorized distributor of Berkey products. Welcome back to the second half of Keys of the Kingdom on First Amendment Radio. Again, I am Paul. I'm from Wisconsin, and I'm filling in for Brother Gregory as he's in on the All-American Whirlwind Tour. He's located in Texas today, and we'll be doing a number of stops around the Dallas area and then heading eastward. Um, if you're interested and you want to go and visit with him directly... You can find out exactly where he's going to be by going to hisholychurch.org slash tour. And you can find the whole schedule of the tour. Um, before the break, we were talking about uh, the definition of church. And this is, I want to hit on this again because it is truly one of the keys of the kingdom that we want to emphasize. But in, even in Black's Law Dictionary today, you look up church and you find out it is, a, in its most general sense, the religious society founded and established by Jesus Christ to receive, preserve, and propagate his doctrines and ordinances. Also, a body or community of Christians united under one form of government by the profession of one faith and the observance of the same rituals and ceremonies. <clears throat> While this definition of a church may be accurate, our understanding of it can be greatly altered by altering our understanding of, quote, his doctrines and ordinances. To change our understanding of the gospel, it is only necessary to change our understanding of the words used in it and their context in history. If God said that he desired the people to be free of bondage of Egypt, never to return there again, then the purpose of Christ can be no less. Our opinion of the purpose of the church established by Christ has to be altered over the years or has been altered over the years by the teaching and interpretations of men until the church gives the appearance of a form of godliness but it denies the power of the gospel of the kingdom of God and the truth that Christ's sacrifice set men free in spirit and in truth 
If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8.36 And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8.32 Republics may take many forms, and may have different types of governments within the general condition of recognized and individual freedom. In one sense, a republic signifies the state of a people existing independently of their form of government. In such republics, the leaders are not rulers because they are titular in nature. Natural law was first defense of colonial liberty. Some colonists went so far as to claim that they were granted by the king of kings and therefore no earthly potentate can take them away. This idea of the government being separate from the people is not unique or foreign to the church. Israel was originally a republic, dependent on free will offerings and voluntary participation of its citizens in service of its nation and society. Its leaders or government ministers were kept separate from the people. The people's contributions to government and their participation in it was always by free will choice. Their ministers did not stand between God and the people as some teach today. They were doing something unique and essential for a healthy society. They stood between the gods of the world and a free people living in liberty under God. They did this by supplying the service and benefits of the government without exercising authority one over the other, as God and Christ had said from the beginning. But the adversary works his sorcery through the servants of subversion, promising liberty from their responsibilities through sloth. He brings in servitude. Turning minds and hearts through the sophistry of scholars, the promises of politicians, and the apostasy of the modern church, the voice of the people was tempted to reject God again and return to the tribute and bondage of rulers. Instead of living by the perfect law of liberty through charity and the voice of the people, elect men who call themselves benefactors of the people but who exercise authority over them contrary to the decrees of Jesus. The kingdom of God only binds men together by faith, hope, and charity. Jesus Christ and the apostles like Gideon would the apostles, comma, like Gideon, would not rule over the people. Moses led the people out of bondage into a system of government where there were no kings who could exercise authority one over the other, no government to make laws and cause the people to bow down and serve them. God uses such governments to punish the people who reject and turn from him, to set up men as gods, lowercase, through sloth or consent. The ministers of God's government are not like Cain, Nimrod, Pharaoh, or Caesar, but are to be titular leaders of a peculiar people. The temptations of Jesus are not the temptations of every man who is tempted to rule I'm sorry, they are the temptations of every man who is tempted to rule over one another for his own profit or to bow down to the will of others for his own gain. But we should also not act arrogantly, slothfully, or foolishly in a way that will tempt God. Stoicism had been founded in the 3rd century B.C. The Stoics, like the fictional Spock from Vulcan, considered emotions destructive to, lo to logical and good judgment. They also sought moral and intellectual perfection. The Stoics were concerned with human freedom in accord with nature. The conflict often arose in the debate over what was natural and moral, which led to the persecutions by Stoic emperors like Marcus Aurelius. Some men have the misconceived notion that it is natural and moral to rule over other men. They imagine it moral to impose their theory of moral perfection their will on the others. Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic president of the empire, led what historians have called the Golden Age of Rome. The only wealth which you will keep forever is the wealth you have given away. Emperor Antonius Pius and his successor Marcus Aurelius were considered the, the more benevolent reigning emperors of Rome. Apologists 
Justin the Martyr wrote Antonius explaining the virtues and polity of Christians as a self-serving governing, self-governing people. Although several emperors had chosen to leave the Christians alone and Marcus had been tutored by Antonius, he was never able to trust Christians and had one of the worst records of their official persecution. Celsus, a Platonist, writing during the term of Marcus Aurelius, opposed the sectarian tendencies at work in the Christian movement because he saw in Christianity a privatizing of religion, the transferal of religious values from the public spheres to a private association. Like the modern church, Celsus chose to place the responsibility and obligations of religion on men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority over the other. This is not what the Bible calls pure religion. <clears throat> All right. A little bit of interpretation here. Um, what are we talking about? The church today and the people like Marcus Aurelius in the past, they see it okay to send the needy you know, to the governments of the world. If you approach a church today, um, most churches say, and say, I'm in need of food. Will they give you food from their own stores, or do they send you to get in on food stamps? Uh, check with your church, see what it would do. Taking care of the widows and orphans, and how you do that is pure is religion. That's it. If you look up the, religion, the word religion in the Bible, you'll see it occurs in five verses, which is really three passages. And two of those passages, it's not a a good light in which you see it. John, or I'm sorry, James one twenty seven, where you you will find the definition of pure religion: how you take care of the needy, or the widows and orphans, unspotted from the world. And again, this is the world, the word from cosmos, which means the constitutional order. So, how you take care of your needy outside the view of the of the government you know it's it's the job of the church to take on this responsibility it's your job is your church doing that if not you need to look elsewhere it's the spirit of charity and the spirit of how we take care of our neighbors and love our neighbors which is the essence of the kingdom of god We will uh, continue now with reading. I had a little editorialization again. Uh, this is entitled Consent Thou Not. We're still going through the higher liberty, and we're on page four. One way to create government is to invest your own right to choose in the hands of government by consent. That form of government may consist of a single man or body of men. A portion of your right to choose or liberty is waived, and that power of choice is granted to others. Once you are bound by contract or oath, the leaders may force the sacrifices of the people. The leaders of these types of government become rulers and will be able to take the first fruits of your labor, make his instruments of war, and take your sons and daughters and much more. This power to compel your offerings is his by your consent. This contribution may be by virtue of legal title to property or even to the people's labor. That sacrifice is similar to the corvee system of statutory labor of Egypt and the korban of the Pharisees that made the word of God to none effect, according to Jesus. The lawful giving up of your God-given right to choose, your freedom, your liberty, it must be done by consent. We know that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent, just powers from the consent of the governed. All government without the consent of the governed is a very definition of slavery. Therefore, what is mine cannot be taken away without consent. Yet a contract is law between the parties having received their consent. People who have signed contracts with the United States through application and participation must also believe in 
the United States of America as a government and must also believe that the government's just powers are derived from the consent of the government, a democracy in a republic. This, of course, must be done voluntarily because nothing is so contrary to consent as force or fear. The contractual nature of government used to increase its power is not new. When the Israelites went under the power of Egypt, it was by contract through the application for benefits. The same method of being a mighty provider, but for a price, is the most common matter manner of expanding the power of governments. The real destroyers of liberties of the people is he who spreads among them bounties, donations, and benefits. For no one is obliged to accept the benefit against his consent. But if he does not dissent, if he does not dissent, he will be considered as assenting. Because every man is presumed to intend the natural and probable consequences of his own voluntary acts. By vesting some of their own God-given right to choose into the control of other men, people become subject to the powers of government they create. If that subjection is coupled with debt, the bonds of government, the bonds under government power are not easily broken. The bondage of Israel in Egypt is clear evidence that the withdrawing of consent does not set men free. Israel had to learn many things which the people had forgotten before it was ready to take on the challenges of being a free nation under God. And in the same way, we have to return to that way and relearn many of these things that we've forgotten. We don't remember what it was like to be free. Uh, the government constantly tells us that we live in a free country. Of course, it's in its best interest to do that. What uh, better way to enslave someone than to tell them they're free? And that's a paraphrase of a great quote that I can't remember at the moment, word for word. All right, back on the subject of contracts. Why are we subject to the ordinances of men? Why are we under tribute? Mankind has consistently gone into bondage and under the authority of other men who make laws, compel offerings, and regulate the lives of people. They become subject by application to obtain benefits, and their contract and their covenants to guarantee security. <clears throat> and to you who are troubled, contracted, rest tolerable to activity with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels according to the, all the works which they have done since the day that God brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day the people have returned to bondage. The people in the camps of the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai were going back into bondage. In Egypt, all gold was in the treasury, and they were bound under a central authority of that government. The people were no longer free, but bound and their loyalty secured. He who contracts knows or ought to know the quality of the person with whom he contracts. Otherwise, he is not excusable. It is that power of contract that has allowed men to return to bondage, and ignorance can be no excuse for those who chose to receive benefits at the expense of their neighbors. No state shall... Dot, 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 impairing the obligations of contracts. From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from ap apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. That's a, a quote from the fall of the Athenian Republic. But it, uh, you can see history repeats itself, <clears throat> just looking at today's society. All right, what is this surety thing? The price of surety. Many a man thinks he is buying pleasure when he is really selling himself a slave to it. Ben Franklin. Modern society is in bondage as a surety. Men have sold themselves as a surety for debt and are suffering for it. He that is a surety for a stranger shall smart for it, and he that hateth suretyship is sure. Proverbs 11.15 A contract arises from the principles of natural law. It is voluntary and founded in consent, 
It involves mutual and reciprocal obligations, and it is for mutual benefit. The use of the thing is the object. The captivity of the people established through the acceptance of benefits granted by contractual submission to the feigned benevolence of government. When the benefit is provided through debt, the former beneficiary is snared as a surety. The Bible is a story of men rejecting the rule of God and going into servitude under governments of men, which is sin. The Ten Laws are the constitution of God's government. Christ's redemption and command for us to live by faith, hope, and charity, loving our neighbor and not coveting his goods, is our surety. Have we made covenants with God or with men and their gods? A contract is is the law that binds us, and there is no relief in federal or state governments who by their own natures must hold you to the contracts of your own making. Galatians 4, 8, and 9, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and the beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and shall melt with fervent heat. Uh, that passage, what are we talking about there? We talk, well, here, it says in the reading, so I'll just do that. Some interpreters of the New Testament suggest that the elements melting is referring to a future nuclear war. The word element is from the Greek stoichion, from stoichio to proceed in order to direct one's life. Like the word, like with the word exousia, we need to question what the author meant by looking at its meaning and its use at that time. The same word element is used also in Galatians 4.3. It is used in reference to being in bondage under the elements of the world. In Galatians 4.9 we see, But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the work and be- the weak and beggarly elements, Stoichian, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. The same words are seen in Colossians 2.20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments stoichian, of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? In Colossians 2.8, we see the word traditions, which is also translated ordinances. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The word spoil means to carry off booty. In every case of the word world, in every case, the word world is the Greek word defined constitution, order, government, or state from the Greek word cosmo. God wants us to be free souls under him and not spoiled under bondage to states like Egypt, Rome, or Babylon. He does not want you to swear or contract, or pray for daily bread and benefits from those men who exercise authority and bring you back into bondage to the elements of the world, but but to be only in the world and not of it. All right, another word that a lot of people have problems with is mammon. It's very confusing, and there's very many different definitions out there. It comes from Matthew 6.24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon does not mean money, but it is entrusted wealth. Systems that hold or control the right of the people to make choices about their wealth and property are forms of mammon. Such systems always fail under corruption, avarice, and overindulgence. We are seeing the long-term ramifications of fractional reserve system. They are only they are not new in history and are often devastating. Inflation was a terrible problem for the time of the early church as silver was removed from the coins by the governments of Rome and taxes were raised for those subject to them to support its corruption. 
And I say unto you, Make to yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Luke 16.9 Mankind has repeatedly been snared by its own wantonness and appetite, its own greed and lust for power. Man's sinful nature will always bring him back to the bondage of Egypt. He must repent and change his ways in order to be free, even though he may have to suffer for a season under the burden of his captivity while he learns again the ways of Christ and his Father in heaven. In the process of being freed from bondage, we may have to continue to pay Pharaohs, Herods, Caesars of the world, but we should not eat of the things sacrificed to those gods of force and fear. They serve deceitful meats, and their table is a snare. Christ's kingdom began with those who changed their ways and sought his righteousness. The kingdom was only for the virtuous who loved their neighbor. It was for those who truly believed in Christ's sacrifice, his giving, and forgiving in spirit and in truth. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. 1 Corinthians 10.21 I just wanted to wrap this up with, actually, go back to the, the beginning of the book. There's a little dedication by Brother Gregory. And I thought this would be a good way to wrap up the program as we're coming to an end. It says, Dedicated to the service of the Lord, His Holy Church. The adversary of God has twisted words to deceive mankind from the beginning of our dominion on this planet. For his own selfish purposes, the adversaries of God have attempted to alter the world we live in by altering our perspective of the ways of God and tempted us to depart from the ways of God. The private interpretation of the Bible text passed down to us from the early church has been a Gordian knot that had found the minds of men in personal prison. I'm going to have to stop there as the next. Peace be upon your house and have a great weekend. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.